Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thanks so much, you guys. I'm so excited to be at Skylight. I love this bookstore. And I was talking earlier about when I first moved to Los Angeles, I came here and, and I would sell zines um, at this bookstore because I was a total zine comic person. So it's very special to me to go from being able to sell zines here to being able to present books. Yay! <laughs> so fun. So today, I have my tarot deck, which I made, which is called the White Witch Tarot. And my first tarot deck I got from my mother when I was 16 years old. I got a copy of the Rider Waite tarot deck. How many of you guys are familiar with that one? It's kind of like the one everybody knows. And whenever I talk about that deck, I always like to mention it should be called the Rider Waite Smith deck, which some of them add because the images all came channeled from a black lesbian woman whose name and credit was taken off the deck, and a lot of people aren't aware of her contribution, but she actually channeled all of the minor arcana were from her visions that she made. So if you guys you know, ever want to talk about that deck, you should always mention Pamela Coleman Smith because she's kind of left out of the picture like a lot of African Americans seem to get somehow. So let's just like put her back in there <laughs> a little bit. But that deck I still use to this day to give readings because it's a very accessible deck. And I've been giving readings professionally um, for a little over a decade now. I was like, geez, it's been a while. So um, my deck was inspired not only through my work with the tarot and with clients, but also through meditative practices that I adapted later into my practices, which predominantly I learned through my teacher, Dr. Kelvin DeWolf, who's a Native American and also has a PhD in Chinese medicine medicine, and a lot of his techniques are from the Taoist methods, which are called Nagong. If you guys are familiar with Qigong, most of you have probably heard of Qigong, which is the physical um, way of the meditation, but there's an internal part of Qigong that a lot of people haven't heard of. Like, how many of you guys have heard the word Nagong? Probably no one, right? It's very obscure, but it's actually kind of the heart of the practice that as Westerners adopted Qigong, they left out that part. Much like with yoga, most of you guys probably know Hatha yoga, right? But how many of you guys have heard of Raja yoga? much less people. This is something, it's like a schism has been made in a lot of the practices separating out the, the physical part from the actual mental and spiritual components. So Raja Yoga would kind of be the mental meditative part of yoga, which now gets left out and a lot of it is a little like jazzercise or typo a little bit, right? Without that part of the contemplative experience. So when I made my deck, I really wanted to include aspects of the contemplative um, part of what the archetypes in the tarot are. And with, with the writings that I got for each card and the meanings, they all really came out of intense meditation sessions that I would do, which uh, most of them lasted a, at least a couple of hours that I would do before each card, meditating on how I had experienced each archetype through working with clients and then also just in what information that I garnered through them. So as you guys know, there's a lot of tarot decks out there being made and it's getting even more popular as occultism generally is rising into the populace as less taboo. There's kind of less um, aversion to it as being known as satanic um, or whatever because a lot of people will judge any metaphysical or occult thing as satanic, which is um, what the Catholic Church accomplished uh, in its mission. Which I, I don't know if you guys know much.
much of the history of playing cards. Do you guys know that playing cards uh, came originally from the tarot? And what happened was that playing cards started to be used for gambling. So the Catholic Church all over Europe made cards illegal and you were not uh, permitted to even possess playing cards because uh, it was punishable by law. So those kind of laws and practices affected tarot and a lot of <clears throat> the gypsies that would use tarot were arrested or punished or tortured if you were even caught with a deck of playing cards. So a lot of the modern taboos accusing tarot of being satanic actually originate from that um, Catholic law forbidding the use of the cards, um, which still hangs around today, ironically. So it's important to kind of remember some of that history and, and what went into where it kind of separated from popular culture and became something that was known as dark or whatever. But that really was just the Catholic influence. So, <laughs> But having said that, much of the meditative practices that you use with tarot are mostly psychological and it's used as a language to communicate with the subconscious essentially is how I view the images so you can get a response from your subconscious mind through working with archetypes and this is something that Carl Jung wrote extensively about and a lot of psychotherapists will use in their um, in their methods they're trying to get down into the parts of your mind and self that you can't really get access to yourself, right? Like, how many of you guys have ever had an experience where something was brought to your attention that you were doing that you just had no idea that you were engaged in doing, right? This happens more often than most of us would like to admit, and it's very difficult to kind of shed light on things that you're just not aware of yourself, yeah, front row. <laughs> so for me, in my experience with the tarot, I would really describe it as a mirror that affords an ability to look into some of those dark parts of yourself that maybe you're just not aware of or paying attention to, right? Of course, in a lot of modern popular uses, people will use the tarot primarily for prophecy to try to see what's going to happen in the future, right? I mean, when most of you guys think of tarot and a lot of people that will come in for readings even, their focus on it is to try to be like, what's going to happen? But even there is the secret of the subconscious access, because if you're concerned with what's going to happen, that's basically a fear, right? So if you're asking a question and have concern about what's going to occur with something, that's actually, you're trying to get into unknown territory, even just through asking those kind of questions, right? So... A lot of the occult methods going all the way back to Egypt, which is something I talk about in The Secret Source, is that they were question and answer techniques where you would engage in a dialogue to really get into some of these secrets that lie underneath your conscious brain. You do it through asking questions. And one of the most famous old texts where they did this uh, was called Poimanders in the Hermetic Literature. And basically, Hermes, or Toth, was asking a dragon all these questions in a kind of like back and forth dialogue, which is essentially what you do when you use any divination source, is just this conversation that you're having with a kind of tool, or I would even go so far as to call it an artificial intelligence machine that you're engaging with a dialogue to try to get data or information on something that's hidden. I mean, how many of you guys have ever had a tarot reading before or engaged in it? 
Okay, so a couple, but not everybody. That's interesting, right? So a lot of people will have taboo about it and think you're not supposed to ask tarot questions or things like that. But I'm one of those Alice in, in Wonderland kind of people that asks a lot of questions incessantly, almost annoyingly, which is how I follow and try to get information. So for me, divination is a very good, accessible tool to ask and get questions answered because I'm very curious, right, to try to discern information. So predominantly, I'll engage with it in a sort of dialogue to get data out of it more than kind of prophecy for the future. And one of my favorite inspirations for describing how to use the tarot is Alejandro Jodorowsky. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. His tarot book is like this thick. It's kind of like, mine is so puny compared to his. Mine's sort of like a cliff notes, I guess. But um, Jodorowsky's book, he really talks about how you don't have to use it for prophetic purposes, but more for the mirror aspect and I can't tell you guys how many times I've done readings for people and it's very literal like it'll show a card and the image on the card will be like exactly what the situation is very straightforward it'll just be like a mirror of this is what's happening like right then in that moment even sometimes like I'll never forget this one client asked about her she had a question about a, a guy and the resulting card from the Rider weight deck was the six of swords and in the card is a man and a woman and a child and they're on a boat in the water and I was like is he on a trip with a woman and a child and he actually was literally at that moment going overseas with his wife and child so the images can be so reflective that they'll literally depict what is happening in reality I've had that happen also with the I Ching which is a Chinese divination um, technique and it'll literally just depict exactly what's happening <laughs> and the benefit of that is if you're not sure what's happening or what a situation is you can use the tarot to really be like oh this is what the situation is to really kind of add confirmation or mental clarity about what it is in case you have doubts or questions so for my deck I kind of came up with my own way to do a spread or read the cards that was based on my work with alchemy and research into alchemical techniques. How many of you guys know a little bit like about alchemy? I know it's getting like a very pop terminology now. Are most of you guys familiar with that word or have heard that word? Some of you, yeah. Alchemy essentially looks at two opposing forces like black and white, yin and yang, dualistic forces that are different from each other. And it uses techniques to bring those two opposing forces together into some kind of reconciliation with each other. In my opinion, we need that a lot, especially now. Any of you guys that use Facebook, maybe we're like, oh, I wish I had some alchemical techniques to deal with all of this opposition. <laughs> but essentially, alchemy looks at how to resolve conflict. Right? So with my spread that I made, it offers a way to look at uh, what the two opposing forces are and how to reconcile those in the situation. Right? So it uses a technique where you make one of the cards, and we'll do a, a demonstration. We'll come up with a question so you guys can see what I'm talking about. But it'll have one of the cards will be the protagonist or kind of like the hero of the story or the, the good guy, I guess you could say, even though there's no like good guys and bad guys, right? It's just a bunch of guys. So <laughs> the protagonist will be the kind of positive or yang force in the situation. And then we'll have another card that represents the antagonist or the negative force or the rebel or the opposer. Um, or the adversary, I guess you would call it. And then the third card represents where those two things meet together. Because if you can get good at being able to identify how two things are different, 
and then see also how they are the same or how they come together, that's essentially what conflict resolution is, right? So you can use conflict resolution not just for yourself, like if you're kind of conflicted about a decision or a person or an event in your life, if you have any kind of inner conflict about something, you can use these um, resolution forces to deal with it even just in your own brain. But then also if you have to deal with other people who are oppositional, which you probably will in your life <laughs> sometime, I imagine. If you have a family, it could happen on a daily basis uh, where you have to engage in those kind of conflicts. So for me personally, I'm very interested in trying to find ways to resolve conflicts, right? Instead of just fire them up until the bitter end uh, occurs, which has been, I've noticed, maybe it's just social media that's put it on blast in people's minds, but a lot of people I feel like are just taking the conflict to the bitter end and trying to dominate or win the situation instead of looking more for resolution to what's occurring. Or if there is some way that you can meet in the middle. And as a result of doing the alchemical work, uh, it goes by the middle ground or what they call the golden mean. How many of you guys are familiar with that idea of the golden mean or the golden rectangle? The idea of that concept in alchemy is a place in the center somewhere where these two opposing forces can reconcile each other. And that's really predominantly displayed as the heart center where you can use love to resolve conflict or compassion to see the other person's point of view or to see both sides so it's not just one thing against the other. And I think psychologically, the more we train our brain to engage in that kind of thinking, you'll start to notice that you'll be able to do it automatically when you find yourself in a conflict. You can start thinking, what's the middle ground between me and this conflict or, or your adversary or your enemy instead of just going what I see happening a lot in a separation direction, right? The thing that happens if there's no reconciliation or no way to meet halfway or meet in the middle with people or events or things, it's going to separate and there's going to be a schism. And that can happen in your own mind, it can happen in your family, it can happen in your relationships. If you can't find that ground to stand on, you're probably going to separate. Like, I noticed even after the elections, there was huge separations between people, and those schisms and chasms grew so big that there was no reconciling uh, available because people just didn't have the tools or techniques to be able to engage in, in reconciliation because this, the, the oppositional forces were so outrageous outrageous uh, to each other. So whenever we find ourselves in times when these schisms get so huge, we you have two options, right? You can either separate, but I mean, you know, we're just all on planet Earth, so there's not like anywhere we can really go to get away from each other. You can move away from people that are outrageous and negative and terrible, but like, or try to send them all to Australia or something. I right, which is what they'll try to like send them all to an island or a prison or something. But maybe we can find some techniques that could, you know, help support reconciling more than separation. But I don't know, maybe that could be a little idealistic, but we can at least try to engage it on personal levels more. And I think hopefully my idea with, with presenting the deck in this fashion, using these techniques, is to try to just give practice to people for thinking about things in terms of like, well, here's me and here's like what this thing I'm facing is and how do I get a resolution, right? Most of the spreads that people will use with the tarot traditionally, most people will use what they call the Celtic cross, uh, 
spread if you guys like are familiar with that they have it in the rider weight deck so they'll use a type of spread that just looks at a general amalgamation of different things and some people have made like there I think there's a Kabbalah tree of life spread and and a lot of those things that involve like a lot of cards but I really through my work I really like the three card because it keeps it simple keeps it straightforward doesn't get all complicated or convoluted there's not a lot of stuff to keep track of so so I thought what we could do today for a demonstration is we could maybe come to an agreement on a good question to ask that might be a conflict and we could we could ask the cards and get some clarity on some form of larger social conflict maybe and see what the Oracle has to say about what the protagonist and antagonist and reconciler would be, right? We could, because there's certainly a lot to choose from <laughs> that are going on. So maybe we could just throw out some ideas of what might be a good focus for the cards today to see um, as an example of reconciling opposing forces. Do you guys have any ideas or anything that, even personal things are going to the national. I feel like a lot of the national issues are also hitting people on personal levels that they're dealing with. So you guys can just throw some ideas out there if you have any pertinent things we could look into. Yeah, Diva. White supremacy, White supremacy is a big one. Yeah. Patriarchy to matriarchy. Yeah. Oh, that's good. We could go real big, right? Yeah. Alien and human. Yeah. Right? Any, any other ideas? Those are all pretty good. Right? I know. We could keep it binary and do the patriarchy, matriarchy, because that goes sun and moon, kind of. I mean, those are literally two opposing forces, right, of yin and yang, or, or black and white. And I guess, like, even the white supremacy would kind of fall under that category to a certain extent because of the structure of patriarchal concepts or ideas, or domination in general, right? A little bit. Yeah. What do you guys think about, is that kind of a good one, you guys think? Yeah. Let's take a look at that and just look at, examine what those two things are and how they would reconcile, right? Why don't I, let's have a couple of you guys pick the cards. So I'll shuffle, and if, if a couple of people want to come pick, there's three cards, so maybe we could have three peeps come up and each pick a card don't have a conflict over it or anything. <laughs> I know you're front and center. So this will be the, the protagonist, which would be the patriarch, because that's plus or yang or bright, right? And then the antagonist would be the feminine force, because yin is usually seen as negative or dark right or that and then you can pick the reconciler that would be wonderful maybe if we have time we can do that one too do you want to pick one wonderful so then we have the reconciler of where the two meet okay so for the patriarchy the card we got is the world which in my image, I know it's probably hard for you guys to see, but the inspiration for this one was Atlas kind of having the world on his shoulders and what we carry um, on the world uh, as we go through it, right? And it's very appropriate for masculine energy because it's that thing kind of supporting it from underneath, right? A lot of the that kind of masculine energy is thought of as protective or in its ideal form, right? That defensive instead of aggressive. Like a lot of people now, we think of masculine or alpha energy as this aggressive thing that's going to fight when in occultism it was mostly more like something that could protect or defend, not be aggressive, but use enough force to keep something safe is the idea. 
So I'll read you guys the little writing that I have for the world. For the world, the key word I use is liberation. And I say, the burdens shoulders carry are seeking to be blessed. A heavy load grows light as feathers when it's laid to rest. Sympathy for agony never threatens liberty. So it's funny, this is like a being too defensive, right? That you don't need to be so defensive. You can actually just put it down and let it go, right? Liberty never threatens liberty. It brings gains throughout humanity, encouraging universality. When all is also what it isn't, magic works to make things pleasant. You are only made of clay, rolling forward every day. Condensed and hardened, you may shrink, but you can lift more than you think. Pull it together, make the link. So this one is really about support and strength, which would be ideally what we could get from the masculine energy, right? Which is kind of lacking presently and on the larger scale, not very supportive, right? So. So for the feminine, for the matriarch, oh, we totally got the mother card, which is the empress. The empress is the mother which gives birth to matter. So very appropriate card indeed. I don't know if you guys can see, but my concept with this one was like how the creative force enters to give birth, which in the traditional decks, um, the empress is shown as a pregnant woman, um, which is very appropriate for the matriarchy. Right? I'll read you guys the little poem on the Empress. The keyword was creation. So, creative energy is the enforce, right? The ability to make things, which is ironic since all the artists are really having a rough time in the patriarchy, right? It says, unfold into manifold, spread across the centerfold, a skirt that rises in the twirl and dance, all fall under like a trance. Enchantress, seductress, recombinant and infinite, growth erupts to be consumed, a field of flowers in full bloom, alive to drink the sun and earth, celebrating every birth. A universe feeds on its own, but hunger pangs become abated when manna is precipitated from within the withered crone. So it has this idea of that, you know, mothers feed their children. We eat our mother, basically. The first food that you eat is your mother's body, literally. So the empress that creates things does it through sacrificing her own body to things, which is very much what I guess you could see the feminine energy is doing with the masculine. Now that we're literally having to sacrifice our bodies, right? in order for that to occur. So those two different forces would be about supporting the earth and the earth itself. So if you look at these two cards, the masculine is supporting the world and the feminine is the world, right? It's Atlas upholding that creative force would be in its ideal form, right? To have that underneath us. Right? So let's see what the reconciler then would be between the two. The fool. <laughs> oh dear, we're going to be in for it, aren't we? <laughs> the fool, uh, in my mind, and this vision that I got, it, it's very shamanic, the fool energy, and very trickster type of energy, which I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with the trickster archetype, but it really uses um, mind and cleverness and trying to figure it out that way. So it would really indicate that the way to reconcile these two things, we're going to have to come up with some strategies, right? Maybe through tricking our way into it or doing it on the sly or on the side to kind of subvert our way into it. It's indirect, 
indirect, right? If we try to face the patriarchy full on, maybe it won't be as effective. We're going to have to think about it and go around a little smarter way, right? So let's see what, what the answer is with the fool. So for the fool, the key word is becoming, and what I have to say about it. Is there yet an enemy can pose a threat to one who's loosened all identity? With no distinction necessary, the universe is who you marry. The end of petty opposition brings love itself into fruition. Unconditional and brave, it enters through the foolish knave. Hold a mind to right and wrong, and you are chained to Abaddon. Certainty comes quietly from acceptance of its own impossibility. So even in the card, it says the way to end the fight or the opposition, right? is gonna be to go through love, which was exactly the words that I said just a few. This is why I love divination. It will mirror, right? Sometimes it'll even say the exact words that you'll say in the, con we've had that experience where we'll have a conversation before we do the divination and the dang cards will use the words that came out of our mouths, right? So, just as an example, on a larger level, we can see that, and also the Fool being the very last card in the deck is kind of the amalgam of all of it, right? And the entry point into the next cycle. For those of you guys who are familiar, there's numbers of, of all the cards um, from 1 to 22, basically, and the Fool is kind of at the culmination. Or some people put it at the beginning, because it's the beginning and the ending, right? So, and ironically, the fool is usually depicted as androgynous. The trickster archetype is neither male or female, and most of the shamans practice androgyny or hermaphroditism, as it's called. So in that way, the cards are answering the way to resolve the masculine-feminine conflict is through the androgyny archetype, which is also ironically rising right now with the trans movement, right? And putting all of that into the forefront and challenging the patriarch in a major way to challenge people to accept the trickster archetype, which is neither male or female, but both. So the way that we can personally maybe resolve some of these issues is to loosen up our identity identifying factors, which is also a big thing in the white supremacy, right? The main reason for that is through these identifying factors that people are really holding on to that they can't let go of because it will threaten their own identity, much like how people are reacting to the trans movement, because they find it threatening to their own gender identity, right? So the path out of that is going to be to include both of them in ourselves and other people. And ideally, for the, for the patriarchal energy to support the earth itself, which of course is what's also on blast right now with all of the climate situation and the decreasing of all of the help for the EPA or, you know, support of nature, the loss of the, the public park lands being sold. We're not getting the support for the earth. So the cards would also be indicating the way to do it and solve that energy is for the patriarchal energy to give support to the earth, which is the mother creator, right? So pretty fun <laughs> to use the cards on a lot of, I know a lot of people mostly just think to ask about personal stuff, right? But you can use tarot to ask even about, you know, alien stuff like he was mentioning or things on larger levels. You can ask about social political questions. You can use the cards like a guru and even ask about your own spiritual 
personal quest, instead of just personal things happening in your life, you can ask, like, how do I evolve as a person? You know, or think of questions or conflicts that you have in your, in your situation that might go bigger, right, than yourself. And then in the, in the conclusion, in the back of the book, I mentioned that there's an, an additional thing you can do after you do a reading. You can try to imagine the reading that you just got from the perspective of a person that lived 100 years ago or 200 years ago and try to blow it up a little bigger and in that way expand your time frame like because and this question's a good one for that because it's been around for a while right so think about the difference of how this response would pertain to someone dealing with these same issues a couple hundred years ago similar it's the same thing always Right? Yeah. If there are people living on other planets, what they like? Right? That's a good question, too. You can ask the tarot that question, too. If there are people on other planets, what they really like? Yeah. That's a good one. And humans in general. You can ask, what are people? Uh, alien people. What they like? People live on other planets. Who are they? Right? There's all different kinds. All different. They're more like that or they're different? There's all there's some like us, there's some that are very different. Like species of animals. Yeah. How about the Balkan? There's lots. So there's really, as you can see, and that's where a lot of people will compare divination to Pandora's box a little bit because you can ask really never-ending questions. Um, but I like to encourage people, if there is questions that are bigger than things that you consider, to definitely ask those questions <laughs> and explore and see what the divination methods say. Do you, does anyone have comments on the reading itself that we got or any um, things that it made you think of? I guess, like, so if you're trying to use it to resolve conflicts that you're dealing with and to, like, you know, um, about these issues, like, say you're trying to, like, have a discussion with somebody who believes the opposite, you know, yes. is, is um, offended by uh, trans individuals. Yes. Or, you know, doesn't think climate change is a thing. And so, like, or, like... How to apply like, it. You know, doesn't think the patriarchy is an issue. So, like, this is, it's kind of seeing what maybe, like, I would already find to be obvious, but they, you know, how would you kind of apply that into, like, an, a... A discussion you're having with somebody? Sure, that's a really good question. Like the practical application of the fool, the fool doesn't have an identity. So if you're going to approach someone who has some kind of conflict like that, you can't come at it from like, I'm this and you're that. If you're trying to speak with someone who's racist or against trans people, you have to get rid of your identity and your agenda going into it, or else you're just going to come up against your values versus their values, right? So this would, when we have the fool as the response, you can't go into it with your issues either. <laughs> you have to drop those, which is very difficult when you come into a direct confrontation with one of those individuals that is holding on to some identifying factor. I mean, you guys, how many of you guys have had successful moments there where you've been able to like kind of put yourself aside and not come into direct opposition with them, but deal with it in a more open fashion? It's extremely hard, especially if you're being victimized by them or they're aggressive or it's outrageous where it's threatening to your liberty or life to be able to drop your identity saying, I have the right to this because I'm this. That's very difficult to do. Right, so that's why the fool is usually only taken up by shamans because that's a lot of work to drop your identity. They shake it up. 
you're going to come into a practice of being able to drop those identifying factors when you come into confrontation. And just as an example, you can see people who are successful at doing that, like Martin Luther King Jr. would be a good example. He was able to, as a black man, drop his justifications. He didn't make it about him. He made it about the value and the issue itself. And that's how he was able to go big with it, right? He didn't make it about his personal experience or even him as, a, as an individual involved in it. He was able to go big. And that's a good example of when you can really drop your identifying factors and focus on what the issue is. Does that make sense and kind of answer? Yeah. Gandhi also very much so. He was an Indian man coming into opposition with the enemy. Exactly. The, he literally was coming up against the white supremacists trying to colonize the, all of India. And so he could have gone the route of, you know, playing the victim and making it about what he suffered or what the Indian people suffer, but that's not the way that he did it. He was able to drop all of that and really go bigger, right? So I just think that's a really good answer. <laughs> to the question and you know might even pertain to aliens as well it would be about dropping our personal identity as humans if we were to come if you would imagine I could probably apply this to that question because you'd have to drop your identifying factors as a human to deal with this other thing right but you couldn't really do that if you were going to hold on to your humanity because you would not be able to relate to the alien at all in that situation because you're this and they're that. So it would really kind of um, be the same answer, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. In the present political situation and the last election, could this, uh, uh, this one help? Uh, that's a good question. She asked if in the present political situation, if this would help. I feel like it's true. The important thing that it seems to be you know, advocating is to support the earth. So a lot of people are making it about interhuman arguments, right? Everyone's fighting about all this people stuff. But the larger issue is that the earth we live on is having problems. So I do feel like you could go way big and this answer would supersede all of the people fighting stuff. And I feel like the only people that are really doing that is the native indigenous people. Like look at a perfect example of Standing Rock. They weren't even trying to defend their right for rights, which the Native Americans have had all their rights removed. No, they made a stand for the earth, not even for themselves. They dropped their human identifying factor and instead were doing this, supporting the earth. They were the only ones making it about that. So you'll see a lot of people making it about their personal opinions or agendas with what they think people should do. And the Native Americans were straight up like, no, it's not even about us or even about people. It's about the earth, right? On a way bigger level. They weren't even trying to get anything out of it except to protect that. So I feel like you could apply it on that level, right? To go big with it. But mostly we just get so pinholed in our, our personal experience and fighting with each other. You know, like a bunch of kids over stuff that's so dumb. <laughs> and then meanwhile, there's no more fish in the ocean, right? And no more trees, and we're still fighting with each other over who's, what sex we like to have. It's just really, and then there'll be nothing left to eat, and people will still be fighting about that. <laughs> It's true. We have to drop the identifying factors and then come together with it. More and human. I want to say we got to make sure everybody gets a chance to ask the question. Any other thoughts or feelings on it that you guys have? I mean, how do you how do you um, how do you recommend sort of dropping your? I mean, obviously, like I was just 
was, for example, at a screening, and yes. it was very, my view, it was like a hunter versus me who's mainly you know, vegetarian. Sure, that's a good one. versus a vegetarian. Yes. Let's talk about, like, how do you, you know, what, what do you drop your identification? You have to drop your identity as a vegetarian right. and make it about the animals. Right. Not a, right? That's the correct I did, but she choice. Told me, I said, why do you want to kill? And, and his answer was that um, I don't understand his culture, basically. So he's holding on to his cultural identifying factor in that argument. You see how he absolutely took a stance in identity to oppose you? in that moment. So if you then take a counter stance, we're going to have a fight. So we have to drop the counter stance and make it about the issue. Does that make sense? It's hard when people don't really believe in science and facts, though. It's like, how do you talk to somebody who doesn't really believe in science and facts? Correct. Believe that animals have brains or have feelings or emotions. How do you talk to somebody like that when they are just? I don't. Right. I don't. I'm trying to ask, like, yeah. What is the fool? Like, where would I drop my identity in that situation? For me. For me, when I, I can only speak of what I personally have figured out, but I like to do it like a mom, okay? So, like, if, if you're dealing with someone who's ignorant or just doesn't know or won't accept certain things, it's a little bit like talking to a preschooler who just is unaware of things or does, won't permit that knowledge. Like, you know, if, if you've ever argued with a child, I'm a mom, so I kind of look at it from that perspective, right? It's like if you try to have an argument with a two-year-old about that, you're going to have a similar conversation where they're just going to keep saying the thing that they think, right? And it won't um, kind of permeate. So really the answer to that question is how you educate. And then you have to use education strategies. You've got to be clever. You've got to go around the back door. Because if you go into direct opposition with a child, you're going to get a temper tantrum is what you're going to get. Are kind of condescending, though? For education, no. Well, sure, but she was saying like with scientific facts and things like that. So, sure, you could come up. That's true. People can have different sources of information to to counter anything, right? You can look at some kind of research someone's done for any site. Really, with the internet, you can look it up in like five seconds, right? So that's a good point. So, I mean, think about it. If you were trying to educate someone, say, on Socratic dialogue or some kind of philosophical technique, right? It would be the same conversation that you would have, essentially, as you would with someone who doesn't want to see the, the other information. So education for me is about expanding the amount of information instead of directly confronting and trying to sh prove the other person wrong, right? So that's the way you get past the condescension. If you're just trying to say you're wrong and this is correct, I agree, that is condescending, right? So you have to view it from an educational perspective, which is about increasing the amount of in, like what they think in addition so you don't have to take away from them. Because if you try to say you're wrong, you're trying to take away what they think. But you can actually add things in addition. And that's a better way to try, and they'll get less defensive. Because as soon as you try to tell someone, no, this fact is right and that fact is incorrect, you're right, you can go back and forth all day with that. So you have to make it about growth and additional information, I feel like. I mean, what do you think, right? Uh, I, 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 I guess I don't, I still don't quite, like for me. <laughs> right. So it was a whole, you know, I'm not, won't get too into it, but it was a whole documentary. It really sided with, uh, basically sided with the hunters in a lot of ways. About right. Game killing. It's called Trophy, if anybody right. desires to see it. So it really sides with the preservationists or the conservationists because they feel like it's like a, justifying a little bit of killing or a little bit of uh, rape or a little bit of you right. know, child molestation. So if you kill one wild big game, then you're saving everybody else from poachers. That's right. really the moral of the story. And they have one of the hunters there. But his, his justification is he has a lamb farm. So he loves the animals, 
but he still knows that he has to kill the animal. Right. So it's a very complex issue, obviously. It's so true. I just am trying to, like... So you would have to present information in addition instead of in opposition if you wanted to really penetrate their perception of the issue, right? Because all the, they have their justifications, correct? Correct. But the justifications seem to not care about Mother Earth or not. I mean, the justification right. is sort of like we're rescuing all of these animals who are extinct and we're right. getting these trophy killers because they pay $300,000, dollars to $300,000 to come kill these majestic animals. Right. And that feeds the industry and helps us fight the poachers. That's really what it's about. Or save the... Right. Or keep these so you have to make it bigger than just their issue right. through taking it to the planet Earth level, <laughs> right? But they believe they are supporting planet Earth because right. they're saving, you know, it's a very species. species. It's true. So the best way is to try to get the information in there in addition so that maybe they'll start to consider the other the other point of view. Because really, ideally, you want to increase and expand the perspective to include multi-perspective, right? The way, the way we're going to get these two guys to do that is for them both to see each other. Because if we can't see each other, then they're just, they don't care about each other. They're just going to like dismiss it, right? So it has to broaden it enough that they can both see each other. Because he probably didn't see you, correct? Correct. So we have to use strategy and cleverness to figure out the way to expand it without going into direct opposition. Very difficult, not easy. Listen, this is not gonna be easy. <laughs> Sorry, like how many of you guys have had wins with it? In coming into direct, there's not a lot of wins out there right now. There's not. With everything, it's sort of about like dropping seeds and hopefully expanding through giving in addition. Correct. I know. It's gonna maybe take a while too. It's not gonna just miraculously happen, especially when people are real rooted in those identifying fact that the identity is gonna hang on for dear life. It doesn't want to die. What's that? Comedy's real. That's the fool. The fool is the satire, right? So you have to, you have to kind of be satiric, be loose with it, be funny, be goofy. The fool and the shaman are the jester. You guys know, like that. The archetype of the trickster is was the jester with the bells on his hat. So you're exactly correct with the comedic factor, and that really, you guys, where's the most headway being happening right now is in the comedians' hands that are being able to really expose these issues in ways where people don't get into bloody violent conflicts. Where is that happening? Except on the Tonight Show, or where they're able to discuss these issues in a satirical fashion so that it'll penetrate through these congealed, uh, icy identities that people have really solidified into, right? And the wiggly, jiggly, laughing guy is the one that keeps from freezing into a certain stance. But these people are frozen into a stance that has become almost immobilized. The sense of humor is severely lacking. So maybe if we get a little more foolish with it instead of the anger, which the anger is justified because it's outrageous. It's outrage, right, is predominating and due to the lack of support, which is threatening the world, right? So... I think that the, the comedic value of the fool is not to be discounted in this situation at all. Like maybe if you had cracked some jokes with him, he would have loosened up a little bit. And it, I mean, you know, you never know. It's, it might not work, but it's worth a shot. <laughs> at least you would enjoy it more. <laughs> and maybe have a better experience, right? <laughs> How are we doing on time? I know we might have run out of time. Yeah. Yeah, actually, exactly. Oh, perfect. Like on the minute. Oh, great. They said she's psychic. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, if you would like to buy um, a tarot deck, 
or um, the secret source, please do come up and we can get them signed for you. Um, you can buy them at the, uh, at the back desk. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, you guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.